day to you, Nick. Good day to you, Michael Beck. I'm glad that we could be together for this theological discourse this evening. I'm very pleased that we are together for this discourse. It is truly wonderful. I uh, <laughs> would like to year fourth proceed with uh, part one of biblical covenants. Number one, the covenant of redemption. Number one, part one oh, A. <laughs> what a precious doctrine, Mike. Oh, it is too. It is too. <laughs> we will. We will get into how precious this doctrine is in all seriousness welcome glad to be with you guys we missed last week uh that was just me being lame so sorry about that and um we are continuing on with the stuff that we spoke about last week which is uh, oh not last week when we spoke last about um this covenant theology these uh these essays that we're going to be looking at um covenant theology biblical theological historical perspectives uh written by kind of whole whole group of guys um go back and look at the other thing i'm not gonna i'm not gonna intro the whole book again but basically the the reformed theological seminary uh theologians uh and they've done a great job here and just putting a lot of uh some kleinian-ish essays together and some very kleinian essays together and some not so kleinian essays together but still just a great holistic treatment of you know just up-to-date stuff regarding covenant theology and just the way we roll on the podcast, just great fodder for us to be able to move through, you know, stuff we like to talk mm. about and stuff that's always good for, for just a, a systematic work through, and um, ties into everything else we all we're always saying. So you know, we've been looking at baptism, this ties into that. We've been looking at two kingdoms, we know now this ties into that. So it's really just a way to kind of hopefully, if you are new to either the podcast or just covenant theology in general, this might be helpful to you because uh, we're moving fairly systematically through the topics, even if the content itself would be better in the book. So if you want to go and uh, look at the book and, and sort of learn, you know, uh, maybe this is not the best book to begin with. Maybe, maybe start with like Sacred Bond, Michael Brown or something like that. But otherwise, um, you know, if you just want to go a little deeper, the book is great. It's expensive though. So, um, you know, this might be a cheap substitute. Stay with us and we will be your cheapskates moving you through and uh, getting you the lay of the land maybe maybe as a result of these discussions you'll go and buy the book we don't get anything yeah. for it so doesn't matter but maybe maybe if the sales spike and they're they're flabbergasted at you know what's happening and they might just get hold of us and give us some money so that'd be great yeah um anyway what say you nick before we embark on this great journey henceforth <laughs> henceforth with conquer <laughs> all right so we're starting with uh Part one, uh, which is uh, to move through the biblical covenants. Now, um, let me just see if I can pull up the um, table of contents here quickly. I'm looking at this on on uh, Lagos. Lagos has a copy uh, that you can buy there. Um, so chapter one is the covenant of redemption. Chapter two is the covenant of works in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, chapter three, the covenant of works in the New Testament, uh, which is... You know already kind of interesting adam and the beginning of the covenant of grace then the noah covenant then chapter six the abrahamic <clears throat> mosaic so the first thing that strikes me here is that they're weaving uh the the feel what i would call the theological covenants into the biblical covenants and i appreciate that there is um some some grounds for doing that in terms of just wanting to see the biblical reality behind those covenants but yeah, I probably sure. wouldn't have structured the chapter this way, you know, just my, oh, my two cents. Okay. Um, because where would you have begun? 
I would have, well, either with the biblical covenants, but that would be a good place to start, start with the biblical theology, just work through. But that would be like, you look at the the covenant in Eden or the covenant, uh, you know, before the fall. And then you look at the covenant, you know, with, um, with Abraham and uh, with Noah, at least mm. before that. And you just keep going through the obviously biblical covenants as everyone knows of them. So let's follow the storyline. Follow, yeah. the, follow the story, do the biblical theology, get all the, 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 the data, so to speak. And then, um, you know, afterwards, you you start building from that data into the system, uh, overarching systematic constructs. So, you know, maybe start with the covenant of work, covenant of grace, or start with the covenant of redemption, and then move down to see it uh, worked out in time, uh, or do it like Klein does it, where you want, want to stay as faithfully, you know, in touch with the biblical data as you can. So you do the the works, grace, and then the overarching covenant, or works, overarching covenant, then grace. Anyway, any 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 number of ways to nerd out on that. But the point is that you. Um, you know, you, you're sort of, I don't know, for me, it's just helpful because then we're going, all right, we're stopped, we've stopped thinking about some some hardcore, concrete, exegetically driven, sort of obvious reality that everyone, whether they're dispensational, covenantal, or, you know, Roman Catholic has to deal with in their Bibles. And now we're starting to think more along the lines of how do we formulate the Trinity? How do we uh, formulate yeah. the two natures of Christ in, in, in his personhood? Um and so forth simulating you know? the data bringing it together bringing it together yeah. doing systematic theology so <clears throat> they do that anyway though you know because they they keep going and again just putting up the um the contents here when they go into historical theology um you know they do kind of i, I suppose it just automatically gets a little bit more systematic at that level as people have wrestled with it but um you know and it's not like it really does the book any harm doing it this way but it's just it just misses something of a clarity there, I think. And I think we did speak about this a while while ago. Um, but, it, you know, hey, that's just my little two cents. And you get it all anyway. So don't let that put you off. Because now, as long as we're aware, I think, as long as we're aware, that, yes, we are looking at biblical support for a systematic doctrine. But we're doing it in a kind of a different way than you do for the other covenants, mm. you know, uh, especially when you get to know Abrahamic mosaic. They don't have the same end point to them. Um, yeah. Any, any thoughts there? No, um, I pretty much agree. I think uh, just the, even in terms of my own discovery of the doctrines, you know, covenant of grace falls in place first, you know, mm -hmm. God saves people. Mm -hmm. Oh, covenant mm -hmm. works. I need that because mm -hmm. he saves me through a representative and then, oh yeah, there's elections in it all. And so then we have to go into eternity past and, and then the covenant of redemption starts to make, you know, gives you the background, yeah. which makes sense of, of, of your salvation. So yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, and we'll talk about this uh, in terms of the trifold and bifold schema of covenant theology, because you can, you know, the people in Reformed, well, if you think about the, the Westminster Confession and its wording, as opposed to the 1689 Confession and its wording. It's just so much better. It yeah. is. Well, on, on this on this particular um, <laughs> topic, I actually, uh, you know, you talk to guys from the Westminster camp and they're like, oh man, I wish we had the line about the covenant of redemption in our confession, you know, because yeah. they don't have it. And it's kind of gets a little weird at that point because you're like, were they, they they were implying it especially around christology they they're implying all of these things that happen in an eternal covenant but it's not as clearly stated which maybe indicates that already from that point there was this big struggle as to how to go about uh you know uh, systematizing this whole thing and uh and that does come into play it is quite an important uh, thing to look at um and we'll we'll bring it up as it comes up here but um well, in fact, one of the first things he brings up, this is by uh, the article, the essay, by the way, is by Guy Richard, um, and it's entitled The Covenant of Redemption. 
Um, and he says, he opens up by saying, many people today have reservations about uh, the biblical warrant for uh, this idea. And you see that, you know, not, not only, it's interesting because you see, we're talk, talking about Reformed Baptists, but one of my favorite uh, Reformed Baptists um, was John Gill. And um, he, he didn't go for the, the trifold thing, but, but you, can, you, can, you can collapse the problem or collapse the issue in two different ways. So either you're focusing only on the, on the sort of the biblical covenant side, you're going, let's look at the garden, let's look at the grace afterwards, and, uh, and struggling to find the eternal plan side of it, uh, trying to squish yeah. that into the, into the, the temporal outworking. Versus uh, John Gill, who goes, let's just go, let's just bring all of the temporal outworking into eternity, because he didn't like to talk about covenant of redemption, covenant of grace. But he ended up with just, even though he called it the covenant of grace, the confusing part is he ended up with what we would typically talk about as the covenant of redemption. So when you read him, you, you constantly have to keep that in mind, because it's just, um, it gets uh, super, super, and that's what led to his... Um, his uh, eternal justification and hyper-Calvinism and all sorts of things. Even, you know, if he didn't go the whole hug, still those inklings were there as a result. DNA is so there, yeah. DNA is there, and there's a, just right off the cuff, there's an, there, there is the payoff of systematic theology and systematizing it one way or another. It's crazy. I mean, you, it's practical. It's not just a theoretical issue. As with the Trinity, as with the, 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 uh, the, the way that we um, understand the person of Christ, I mean, this stuff really hits home in big ways. So um, don't don't think for a second that it's just a, a bunch of ivory tower discussion. Um, the uh, the great thing I always mention, I, might, I, think I sound like a, a broken record on this, but Tom Askell wrote his dissertation comparing um, John Gill's uh, covenant theology to Andrew Fuller's covenant theology. And it ended up being a, a bit of a squabble on the covenant of grace and what to do with it. And do you go threefold or twofold? And, and, and it's a great dissertation. You can get it for free, I believe. I paid top-notch dollar for that guy back in the day. But now they're just giving it away, apparently. I don't know. Someone told me, wow. what are you talking about? You know, buying, buying this dissertation. Apparently, you can just email them and you get it. So I would definitely recommend doing that if you want to see how this works out uh, in terms of its um, various points of or various ways of being systematized. All right. So... The reason people don't like it though from the other side you know john gill was all about the speculation and all about the you know just just his confidence in, in in the way that he was putting it together but i think today it's the other problem it's kind of going well you know it's not directly in the text if it's not screaming at us uh it's yeah. almost like we move more along the biblicist lines and we're more reluctant to to uh, put it together by way of a systematic dogma um, yeah. yeah, and and probably the biblicist lines. It's not only you know the usual culprits of dispensationalists or fundamentalists. For sure, there've been people like O. Palmer Robertson. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he didn't like the covenant of redemption. Someone like John Murray, who wanted to rename it the economy mm -hmm. of intra-trinitarian intra salvation, uh -huh. or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So the biblicism is. Yeah, well, it's almost the biblical systematic stuff. You know, the bibli the biblical theology movement in general, you know, tends to veer away from covenant theology. But but I think those covenant theologians that have been sensitive to the biblical theological side of things, uh, you know, as you mentioned, John Murray, um, uh, Palmer Robertson, but but certainly, um, I mean, you know, even Meredith Klein in his early days, which is crazy. You know, he totally. Robert Lethem is another one. Yeah. I mean, they, oh, do we have to put Lethem and Klein in the same sentence? You know, <laughs> like something might explode, you know, but, um, but, but, you know, the, the idea there is, 
is that you you basically let's start with with Genesis. Let's see what we got there first, and then okay, as you move forward, you see that there is this there is this covenant of grace that's that's happening over there. But Klein was so interesting because he was like he saw that you have to have this two Adam construct that both moves along the, the lines of, of obedience to enter to, to find the promised reward or, or uh, you know heaven must yeah. be earned so he's trying to like the you know before he adopted the threefold schema he's trying to like squish so hard he's like working so hard to get to get uh grace and works to work in the same little uh, covenant there uh, temporally out, uh, worked out you know so from from genesis three fifteen onwards he's just you can see the perspiration you know it's just happening as he's as he's you know, trying to show this is works, this is works, this is you got to earn this. Still, it's justification is still got to be earned, but at the same time, this is grace, this is grace, and he can't like he can't separate those two, and it just gets really weird. Not to mention the um, you know, the the difference between Christ being the one who uh, himself was the covenant servant, or, or where Christ is the covenant Lord. You've got these two conflicting truths, and then it's almost like when he popped over to the to the. Uh, uh, trifold schema. It's just like boom, everything, everything just fell into to place, you know. And it's just like all those little <laughs> got somewhere to hang that, everything. Oh yes, every yeah, everything just yeah, like oh sure. okay yes, Christ is Lord and servant. Ah, brilliant. You know, uh, covenant of works, pactum salutis, covenant of grace. Awesome. So you know, it, it just um, it, it really gets you feeling the the value of the doctrine again. Uh, but but. Uh, coming back to this issue of of speculation, this is where the the, the paper helps. This essay that he wrote here, yeah. because and this is where you know just to counteract everything I was saying a little bit earlier, um, you know, as much as I would see this put into a more systematic construct, I mean I've really valued essays like this where um, you know someone's going, all right, well if it's not in the text, I'm not going for it. So let's see it hard and fast in the text, because yeah. it's got to be. And there, he does right? ask the hard questions. I loved I loved the question in the opening there where he says. You know, around the issue of speculation. And he says, uh, if God really is one God with one mind and will, then why would the person of the Trinity need a covenant to establish agreement between them? Exactly. So he's just looking yeah. at the, you know, if you believe in the Trinity and the one will of the Trinity, then mm -hmm. maybe that would even be an argument against the covenant of redemption. So he's, sure. yeah, he's willing to ask the hard questions, which is yep. great. And so, and even at that level, he's asking it from a systematic the theology perspective you know he's asking a systematic theology question there and um and working it through so that's really good i mean so he's dealing with the nitty-gritty he's saying all right let's let's think about those those objections uh, at the more systematized level and let's think about you know like the doctrine of the trinity although it's not going to glare out at you and say hey i'm the trinity and you know the johannine comma or something <laughs> Don't we wish the Johannine comma was there? But still, still, you know, it's not there. Like comma Johannem, yeah. These right. three are, are one. It's just not there. So you have to go and look for it. But it's not to say that it's not in the text either. That's the other thing we got to stay away from. Yes, sure, it's, it might not be one of those biblicist terms that we're using, but it, it's in the text. You can find the Trinity in the Bible very clearly, and so we must be able to do for the eternal covenant, or the covenant of redemption, or the pactum salutis, whatever you want to uh, call it. Um, so he says, uh, what's interesting about the title is that it uh, kind of pops around. Uh, what was it, Dixon that used it for the first time, I think? Uh, I think it was like the 1600s, uh, I can't remember now. Yep, David Dixon was apparently the first to speak of it by name in a speech he gave to the General Assembly mm -hmm. of the Scottish Church in 1638. Yeah, so that's helpful to know, you know, because I think a, a lot of the time, 
you go looking for the covenant of redemption. Where is it? Where is it? I'm not seeing it in the church fathers. Not going to see. It. Well, again, you've got to you've got to approach the whole thing with a bit more sensitivity than that. Sure, they use the term for the first time then, but he maps out even you know you see it very clearly present in terms of a concept uh, before that point. Um, yeah. You know, and that is obviously. We're bearing in mind here yeah, that covenant theology is really a reformed thing, so we, we're not expecting it to see in any systematized sense um, until after the Reformation and perhaps. Yeah, I mean, on. all federal theology sort of developed post-Reformation. Yeah. So yeah. that's expected. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, and so we have ideas, and we've spoken about this before. We've got things like, you know, in Irenaeus, the recapitulation idea, the two Adam uh, idea. Uh, you've got all sorts of things that, that, that you can sort of find in, in various measures in uh, church fathers that go before then or uh, Middle Ages. Uh, and, and even the uh, what's really interesting, we spoke about this, if anyone wants to check it out, with uh, Lee Irons when he, he was on um, a, few, a year or two back now, um, talking about the voluntarist uh, controversy and the way that it came out of the medieval, sort of uh, trying to get merit, uh, condign merit and uh, congruent merit to work yeah. and, and 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 so it's a big discussion there but it all yields this idea of of the pactum uh the 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 idea of of uh covenant justice essentially for god and um and then Amen. this is the language that they're all using as they start formulating and turning it into a more historical redemptive uh understanding of things rather than the ontological soteriological uh, approach but but uh you know so it's there it's it's it, you know there's a big study it's a massive study and, and some essays we'll look at later on deal with that but um the the point is simply to say that um you know we're using a certain terminology that's unique to the to the outworking of um the reformed uh trajectory but you know one of the interesting points i didn't know this but i mean i i assumed it might i mean i suppose it wasn't a shock but it was just good to see this that it was so popular. It wasn't like it was an obscure idea, which I think is what people sometimes yeah. want to put. It was so popular that it was really unquestioned, even from all sides of the theological spectrum. Even Jacob Arminius made use of it. <laughs> exactly. That was that, that was an un, unquestioned assumption as they move forward in the debate, which uh, yeah. actually ended up being quite important in terms of how you argue for you know assurance and and uh, and election and sovereignty. But um, I thought that was great. That's a, that's a great way to show how widely accepted it had become um, once the title was given. It's almost like we've just said about the, you know, everyone's got these ideas and they're trying to fit it into various frameworks. And just like we said for the tri-covenant schema, as soon as you got the the thing in front of you, it goes bloop, and it all just pops into place. Similar, I think, with the covenant of redemption. Uh, you know, as soon as you've you've got this thing and you've, pinned it down as to you know what exactly you're talking about i think everyone just saw the need and just okay we'll we'll yep. all accept that at some level <clears throat> readily and, um, endorsed yeah. readily endorsed is a good way to put that to put that yeah um okay so uh, other than that what, what struck you about the the essay uh anything particular that that you were that you thought um, was good or bad uh i i guess for me um where he gets it to at the end so maybe i'll save that for the end okay <laughs> the pastoral the pastoral application uh -huh. yeah that's that's where my heart is in it so that's true <clears throat> and it's um it's pastoral yeah. as, as heck uh in fact <clears throat> i got a little summing summary from this guy look at that face you see him oh what a beaut <laughs> what, what a beaut man he had many gifts many gifts <laughs> <but> uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> but he could not have been a model. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> um, John Gill. We'll talk about him later on the pastoral application side. I think he's got something brilliant. Um, okay. So let's take a look at the biblical rationale then. Um, so one of the things I loved about the way he did this is, you know, and I'm going to kind of hop skip over the the stuff I think you find in most, um, you know, readily available. You just Google covenant redemption and you'll sort of get the the proof text. And I think the the basic idea is that if you see, I mean, and who can deny this, you know, it's a little bit like the Trinity again, where you see all these interactions between the father and the son and presuming <clears throat> some sort of um, relationship that involves buying and selling and redemption and, uh, being sent and, you know, uh, achieving something and then receiving a reward according to this arrangement. I mean, you know, you can't read all that stuff without without coming away, <clears throat> even if you don't have this word for it or, or language for it. You've, there's a prior prior arrangement, right, that, yeah. that, that extends, you know, before the world was created. You know, that's just the Definitely. bottom line. It's it's hardly a controversial idea. You have to um, you have to see that in the Bible, especially around John. Oh, my goodness. You know, there's um, yeah, all of Father Jesus has sent me. I have come to do your will. Yeah, all yeah, that stuff. Exactly. I mean, I often think about it. How would you explain those passages without something like a covenant of redemption? I don't think you, you'd have to, exactly. you'd have to really just. Almost... I mean, I think what struck me just, you know, just re refreshing myself on this doctrine. I've never preached on it, just like a whole sermon on the covenant of redemption. It's always right. just been a background doctrine that sure. feeds into every other doctrine. But what struck me is just in refreshing myself is. Basically, you get to the covenant of redemption the same way you get to the covenant of works. Yes. Now, that's more, the, one of the more concrete points I think he brings out, which is very, yeah. very helpful because it's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Because you see the same kind of squabble happen on the covenant of works. It's not like everyone just goes, yay, covenant of works. Where's the language? Show me the language. Exactly. Yeah. It's the same biblicist thing. It's like, all right, I don't see the word covenant. So where is the covenant? And you have to... What do you have to do? You have to define the covenant. You have to say, all right, this is what we mean when we say covenant, biblically speaking. Are we happy with that? Good. Now let's go look for the for the ingredients, for the recipe. Can we see, you know, the ingredients up? Oh, oh, well, they're all they're all mixed together. Oh, we got a cake. It's the covenant of of works. It walks In like the... a duck and talks like a duck. It's, <laughs> it's a, duck. a duck. Exactly. <laughs> and uh and so that's that's and you know, it's not just that there's a parallel by way of um you know, the kind of argument that, that you're using, there's an actual parallel with the thing that you're proving as well, because, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you're showing something that's going to give legibility to everything that, that, that Christ has to do. And, um, and that, you know, it's, it, it's not the covenant of grace as we, as you'll make, uh, he'll, he make that, he makes that point a little bit later on. So in other words, the thing that is the parallel to the covenant of works can't be described as a covenant of grace. So it's got to be described <laughs> as something else. It's not the covenant of works itself. So what is it? You need another covenant, uh, a covenant that happened before yeah. the creation, a covenant just like Adam's, a covenant Amen. that was a agreement to do things, to earn heaven, to get the reward. Uh, well, that's what we call the covenant of redemption. Um, or, yeah, maybe just some of the covenant language, you know, just some of the basic raw materials that betray that there is a covenant. Yeah. Uh, the notion of obedience. And yes. I think he draws out from some of the Puritans, you know, the the titles that were given to Christ around that obedience, the servant mm. motif mm. in scripture. Exactly. You know, it upholds the active obedience aspect, which is mm -hmm. all federal theology. And then uh, by that obedience, he receives a reward. He's given the name above all names. He's, yes. he's given the nations. Yes. Um, and so you, know, you have an obedience and you have a reward. What do you have? 
you've got a covenant. You've got a covenant. Totally. And, you know, it, it's like, you know, not only that, but in the high priestly prayer, he's like, Lord, I've done the thing. You know, Father, I've done the thing that you told me to do. Now give me the reward, you know. It's just so yeah. clear. You can't you can't get away from it, it, you know, I just think of what Klein said in in response to uh, to Fuller and his law gospel continuum and his denial of any sort of covenant of works. I suppose this would apply to some degree to Piper and those who follow Fuller, but but uh, you know, it's almost like Jesus should have play, uh, prayed at that point. Uh, Lord, I haven't done anything worthwhile. Um, you know, could you if you give me something, could it be by grace alone, or you know, I'm not even going to ask, or something along those lines? But you know, it's just not. It's not the kind of. That's what we pray. That's not what Jesus prays as he does Amen. what he does for us. You know, um, so there's that crucial distinction that you have to make. And then you know, just uh, along those same lines, coming down to some of these very helpful uh, details that I've seen in Klein and some other uh, theologians that have brought this out. But I love this. You know, you go to. Um, you go to Luke twenty two twenty nine and um, and you see uh, the word um, uh, diatithemi um, or the uh, the Greek uh, sorry the Hebrew in Psalm two seven uh, chok which uh, is translated decree um, and, and really could be translated covenant. It's actually quite profound if you think uh, you know <laughs> like if you just take the word decree in Psalm two seven and and make it and uh, and and read it as covenant. Then it's saying, "I will tell of the covenant." <laughs> the yeah. Lord said. And what's to me, significant about that is, you know, when the reformers went back to the sources, when they went back to the original languages, when they moved away from Jerome's Latin translation, they they bumped into these covenant this covenant language, and that's yeah. part of what drove them I, in this that's direction. It. It's just coming from the text. So yeah. yeah, that's great, and it's between the Father and the Son that text, which is so you know again so many of these proof texts. Psalm as two, soon as you, it's key. Absolutely yeah, you've key. got it. You've got yeah. something going on. I will tell you of the covenant. It's between me and the and the King, the Messianic King. You know, and this is what you will do. This is what you will have. It's really quite powerful. It's a great piece of uh, of it's a, well, it's a great text to really drill home this truth. You know, I think it's powerful because we believe that the Scripture, you know, if you interpret it in one part. It's consistent with the whole, right? It's not like you have to. It's sure. It's good. It's a good idea to get the whole as well. But you know, you've got the whole at some level when you've got the part right, and that's what's so good yeah. about these. God these agrees moments. with himself. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Luke twenty two twenty nine, which I mentioned earlier, dear Tithemi, um, which is is covenant. So, and I assign to you uh, as my father assigned to me a kingdom is the way it's typically translated. I think I got the ESV here, um, but I covenanted to you. As my father covenanted to me a kingdom. I mean, wow, that's literally connecting yep. the the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. It's going as I have been covenanted, so now I covenant to you. Yep. That's the way it works. It's it, it's perfect. So you know, it's it. I mean, that is not proof texting. That's that's uh, you know, you and obviously we're just uh, brushing over it here. But uh, there's a good argument to be made that that's the way it should be read. Of course, it's uh, yeah, Luke twenty two is. You know, in context to the new covenant and the, the 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 blood and the body and the you know, it's just all Amen. covenant stuff there. You know, so it's not it's not, it's hardly out <laughs> one, of sync. One one grounds the other. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so things like that that I think a lot of people won't even be aware of. Really, you know, they they might just read. Yeah. They're reading the English translation and they're thinking, okay, well, you got you know decree. You know, think election. If anything, uh, you've got uh, you know. I don't know. You're not really putting putting that whole idea of appointment together with uh, covenant. So um, you know that's helpful to know about. I think because all of a sudden it becomes just that much more stark. Okay, we're dealing with something 
that is in the Bible. Um, now, uh, the other thing that, uh, well, I suppose we could, um, any other thoughts on that before we move on? Uh, I've got no, I think we nailed it. I mean, okay. there, it, in that section, he does talk about, he says, um, the Savoy Declaration and the Second London's Baptist Confession both amended the Westminster Confession by adding the phrase, according to a covenant made between them both. Um, so, yeah, he just draws out the fact that yeah. there was some different, there was some development at that point historically. Yeah. But, you know, as he says in the Westminster, though the, the wording of the covenant of redemption is not used uh, as it is in, let's say, the 1689, um, when you, if you got these concepts down and you understand that, that what this is all coming from Christology, essentially, yeah. um, th then, you know, it can't be denied that you'll it really, see it everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And I thought that was a great point. Uh, so let me, I've got all of, I've highlighted a whole bunch of stuff from Gillespie here, but let's just jump over to those individual passages. Cause I think this is worth mentioning. You've got, you know, when I, I know that whenever, in fact, this was, this was a large part of my journey when I was working through it to begin with, I'm like, okay, you know, reformed th theology. All right. Well, covenant theology, let's have a look. What's the first one? All right. Covenant of redemption. Where do you find that? What is, oh. what is that? Oh, well, of course it's in, you know, you go to the proof text, you read, you've opened your first uh, Puritan and you, you go to the, the, pure, <laughs> the proof text, which is Zechariah 6 verse 13. And, uh, yes. and there we said, you know, it is he. Covenant shall, of peace. Yeah. Uh, it is. <laughs> I think it might even be a proof text in the 1689. I can't remember now, but, um, you know, it's he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall uh, bear royal honor and shall sit, uh, sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. There we go. Done. Covenant of redemption in your face. And you, between uh, them both. There you go, <laughs> father and son. <laughs> now, now we know that. Now we know that. But you got to admit, my point is that the first time you read it, I'm like, I okay, is that really talking about an eternal? It seems like a a lot of weight to place on Zechariah 6 verse 13, which I, well, for a long time... that verse itself may even, that verse itself may even be disputed. Like, that's exactly. probably not even a good verse. I mean, firstly, yeah. you've got to go through like, oh, wow. I mean, you got to get a lot of stuff in place before you can even make that conclusion, right? Um, yeah. I, I think it is, I do think it is a good text that that, that works together with, with, um, with the covenant of redemption. But, you know, I, I wasn't convinced to begin with. I mean, my goodness, I just did not have the faculties in place to be able to even come to that. I wouldn't expect someone else to be able to look at that and go, oh, there we go. You know, that's uh, the covenant of redemption right there. Um, so, you know, it, and he does mention, okay, these are the texts that are often brought up and uh, they're the ones that sort of just this and, and one or two more are, are the proof texts. Um, and, and what's really good to know about this is that, you know, there's so much more we could say here, but but this does not hang on those proof texts at all. They could confirm, they could help, but even if it is talking about something else, it doesn't really make a difference to what we're saying ultimately in, in the text that we've already, the much more convincing text we've looked at, not to mention the conceptual ideas uh, involved. Um, so there's Zechariah. Um, there is uh, Psalm 110 as well. Um, yep. That is the, the next one. Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies uh, your footstool. Um, I hadn't, he, he brings this up as one of the more common um, texts that people go to. I hadn't really seen that before. I don't know if that was your... You are a priest forever. Yeah, yeah it wasn't really, I've, I've sort of, I thought about that more in terms of Christology, I suppose, which now I understand again how it works, but it, it had never been a popular proof text that I'd been drawn to or pointed to. Um, but yeah, I think it is a good one. Um, Kelvin, 
It says, we have a testimony of Christ that this psalm was, was penned in reference to himself, which ought to remove any lingering doubts we might have about it. So if that's true, as you just said, then you have that direct father, son, covenant servant, covenant Lord thing going on. And, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's undeniable that what you have here must be dealt with under, a, uh, if not the covenant of redemption, then you have to basically create the same category under a different name. Um, but this is uh, key. Uh, it says, Meredith Klein has argued that in the Bible, the covenantal commitment uh, is character characteristically expressed by an oath sworn in the solemnities of covenant ratification. So we've mentioned that a few times being the Kleinian podcast that we are, but um, the, you know, let's just remember that point. I'm glad you brought it up because that means wherever you've got oath, you know, you're thinking covenant. And now all of a sudden Hebrews comes into play. And, uh, and this is where I would have been sent. Where is, um, is it Hebrews 6 where it talks about the uh, eternal covenant? Um, Hebrews 7, 20 to 22. Is that the one? Was that the one? Yeah. Uh, let's have a look. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant? No, no. There was one where it actually says eternal covenant somewhere. Um, okay. Ooh, probably Maybe he... not. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I think people who know the one I'm talking about will know because this is the only other time. You know, it's got the, the eternal council of peace and then the eternal covenant in Hebrews. And those are your two proof texts. And those are basically, you know, <laughs> sink or swim on those guys. And again, you know, I just want to make the same point there that, you know, it's like, it is actually a really profound text. I mean, Hebrews more so, more clearly so even than, than Zechariah. But um, that's only when you realize, you know, the conceptual needs, you know, uh, that, that, that uh, it's fulfilling or, or the, you know, what it's actually telling you uh, about Jesus and the Father and what can't be ascribed to any other situation. It must be under a covenant of redemption that gives grounds Amen. very clearly to um, our salvation and the covenant of grace. Um, all right. Any other thing you want to mention there? Um, I just, uh, so I think there was just, I'm uh, trying to find the verse in Hebrews where it says, a body you have prepared for me. Yeah. So there's the mm. son speaking to the father. He's not in his body. He's anticipating to be put into a body. And that's referring to a conversation between the father and son in anticipation of being incarnated. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, it's huge. <laughs> it is. It's helpful having a system for that. Yeah, yeah that, that's crazy. Totally. That's great. Um, all right. So I'm to you. Let's hop skip over that one. Um, lots of awesome stuff he says about it, though. Um, all right. Now let's come to the theological rationale, just so we can get this all down in, in, in a single podcast. Um, a strong biblical argument um, has, as we've said um, uh, before we've hinted at this, is that you've, you've got the covenant of works and the covenant of grace that both help you establish the covenant of redemption uh they're 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 they necessitate each other to some degree um the, the how he puts it here is really helpful the existence of a, of a covenant of works in the bible which i think people if i'm if i'm not mistaken people can get to quicker you know they, they go what's a covenant that's a covenant oh there's a covenant that's how it goes in in, in terms of looking uh yeah. even though it doesn't say covenant i think people are very quickly persuaded that there must be uh, there must be a covenant in some form so he says the, the existence of a covenant of works in the bible points to the existence of a covenant of redemption it's the same exegetical process um, the covenant yeah. of works is the theological mirror image of the covenant of redemption this means that the existence of a former covenant even when it's referred to by a different name necessarily implies the existence of the latter you got no mediator between the two you know that's just the covenant of grace that has a mediator 
Um, yeah. You've got, you know, again, all these things that we've been talking about. You've got this works element that must be put somewhere. You've got this in distinction from grace. Um, so you've got a way to to work that all out. Um, it would appear that that Luke, he says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, attempts to paint Adam and Christ as mirror images for that precise reason to show this idea. Yeah, that was, they, that's very interesting in Luke. Uh, I, I'm preaching through Luke, but I actually never picked it. I didn't pick up ah, on the uh, the rearranging of the temptations there. Yes, wow. Yeah, totally. like the theological rearrangement. Uh, yes. Like, oh, that's interesting. That's true. Yeah, it just yeah. brings out something that he's definitely doing there. Sets um, it all up to emphasize that, you know, Jesus is the son of God in the same way that Adam was the son of God, bringing yeah. the parity into view. Yeah. yeah. So the, if the parity is in place, as it is, of course, in Romans 5, then, um, you know, that, that if you've established the one, you've, you've pretty much established the other. The, the reason for that is that you can't, you can't go, uh, you know, you can't, I think with the bicup, even with Reformed Covenant theology, even when they do want to keep law and grace separate as they do. So I think of, uh, you know, many good theologians that have held to a bi-covenant structure, they just struggle at that point because they want to hold to this parody and yet they want to talk about grace for us. And so it's got to be works, it's got to be a, a works-driven covenant that you're talking about there. Um, you've established it in Genesis, now it's being replicated, but that means you need a different covenant. Um, and this, the same logic uh, basically applies when you have the existence of a covenant of grace, in that uh, you know the, it, it presupposes another covenant that has made grace possible. It's not Adam's covenant, that's for sure. So which covenant yes. is it? You know, it must be the parody covenant. It must be. It must be uh, the, the two Adam construct that comes into play. So I thought that little bit of systematic theology is helpful. You know, that's that's where you're Definitely. looking at this from a more conceptual standpoint, and you're saying, okay, well, you know, they need each other. And, and it, it, it's systematic theology, but it's biblical theology because it's it's working with what's in the text. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly right. You're not yeah. working with Aristotelian categories that you're trying to yeah smash into the biblical data. It's from the biblical data that we derive mm -hmm. the doctrine. It's like yeah. really, really biblical theology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i like i like aristotle though just so we, i really like aristotle no, no, for sure but okay. but i mean this this can't be accused of yeah. being you know the typical systematic you know no, no exactly your theology you, sort of it, problem it, yeah. it shows that it must be rooted it's got to be closely closely sensitively connected to the text um okay so now we come to i think maybe the most conceptual systematic side of it which is uh thinking about okay let's think about the wills of god and and let's think about the unity of god and the oneness of god and the simplicity of god and all these traditional systematic categories because one of the big and important objections to a covenant of redemption as this objection would apply to other things as well you know we don't want to separate god you know god there is one god with one will and one mind and you know there is uh yeah. one god essentially we're not we're not tritheists uh we're we're um uh, we, you know, we believe in a trinity, but that doesn't mean that we believe in three gods. We believe in one God, and that has implications. And there are all sorts of important things attached mm -hmm. there. But, um, you know, if you've got three covenants, yeah, and you know, even just the picture, right? Just, I mean, think about you and your wife, or think about any commitment. I mean, there's two distinct parties there that are, you know, connecting, and this is this is. It, it almost it is quite difficult to think of this as one God doing all three things yeah. that involve such a strong commitment. Why would there even need to be a commitment? Because, you know, it's one God and isn't there just one will? So all of those things, you know, I think are legitimate questions and legitimate concerns. Um, uh, and Van Huser gives a nice little spiel about what to do with that. 
You got it yeah. in front of you? You want to read it? Yep, sure. Um, so just uh, listen to what Kevin Van Hooser says on this point. Because the way God is in the economy, in other words, in the dialogues that take place between the Father and the Son in time and space, so we're talking about the economic trinity, mm-hmm. corresponds to the way God is in himself, we may conclude that the Father, Son, and Spirit are merely continuing in history, a communicative activity that characterizes their perfect life together. And maybe I should summarize, it's basically uh, the economic trinity, which is the activity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in redemption, Hmm. um, has a starting point in the eternal relations in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a correspondence between the two. It's not burst from nowhere. It's burst from this moment in eternity, which we call the Council of Redemption. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And, and, and even, you know, just, just flowing right out of that point, you know, the communicative activity, you know, if there is, you know, even just the act of talking, me and you right now, I mean, we yeah. almost, we're back to square one on that, in that, well, we're two different people talking to each other. Isn't this two different worlds? You know, but we must, obviously, if, if we're going to grant any doctrine of the Trinity, there is a communicative activity that must be granted. Yes. Uh, there is the Son who is the Son, the Father is the Father, yeah. the Spirit who is the Spirit. And communication is basic to being a person, not yes. not only being not only basic to being separate persons. That's true. Um, yep. Yeah. Good point. So, and if that's true, then what more are we adding or taking away with by way of covenant? We're just using human language to strengthen the idea that already is granted at at some level if we are, um, you know, trinitarian in an orthodox sense. So. Um, I think that takes that right away, you know, or at least gives uh, someone a, um, a way to move past that, that struggle. Uh, he mentions Gerhardus Fass as well, who uh, differentiates helpfully between predestination and uh, the covenant. So in other words, in predestination, you've got this, this single, uh, what is the word, uh, just undivided will. There's all your undivided will stuff. Um, uh, but the council of peace or the covenant of redemption is there to map out the the workings of how it's going to be applied or um so it's 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 not exactly the same thing as predestination and the decree um and for that reason there's a there's you could see the need for revelation on this topic because it has to do with our salvation which i think folds right well into you know why does this matter and the pastoral stuff yeah amen yeah that that was your cue Mr. Pastor. <laughs> well, I've nearly highlighted the whole last part. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe uh, he, 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 he sort of, uh, he sort of feeds off Valhalla Sabrakel's five points and he boils them down to three. So let me just read his three points. All right. And uh, cause I think, I think they're very helpful. Mm-hmm. So he, he, his last portion says, why does this matter? He says, first, the covenant of redemption guarantees the salvation of the, the elect mm. and makes it absolutely certain. The unchangeable oath of God is standing behind this covenant or is part and parcel of it. And thus, our salvation is sure. And there's that Hebrews 6 verse you were looking for. Hebrews yes, 6, 17, yes. oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Just, at, just as it is impossible for God to lie, so it is impossible for our salvation to be undone. So it's rooting it in the character of God, the eternal promise of God. And, uh, you know, election does help us understand the security of this. Those whom he has predestined, he calls, he justifies, he will glorify. Mm, and mm. so um, certain from that point of view. Yeah. Uh, hey, second, let me, uh, the covenant let me of redemption. On that one. Yeah, you want to just throw yeah, in there. This was, the, this was the, 
the gill part, right? Um, just to, the just to bring everyone, everyone quiet. Yes. Let's everyone quiet. Let's <laughs> exactly. Well, it is kind of a, a somber <laughs> moment because it was uh, among amongst his last words, right? This is uh, it gives us oh, an wow. indication of how he died, and um, you know, of course, Gil, I think most know was you know he was all about uh, the doctrine of predestination and election and the five points of Calvinism, at least Calvinism, and the assurance that comes from that. And so, you know, I think I think it's powerful to know how a man dies, you know, with, with that as his life theme and ministry, and uh, especially the way that it comes through. Uh, he says uh, in, in one of the last letters he wrote to his nephew, um, I depend wholly and alone upon the free, sovereign, eternal, Unchangeable. Just keep in mind, again, we've got the terminology problem there with the covenant of grace. Yeah. But he means what we're talking about. Uh, eternal, unchangeable, and everlasting love of God. The firm and everlasting covenant of grace and my interest in the persons of the Trinity. All right, this is, this is my hope, right? For my whole salvation and not upon any, of righte- any righteousness of my own, nor anything in me or done by me, under the influences of the of the Holy Spirit, nor any services of mine, which I have been assisted to, uh, assisted at least to perform for the good of the church, but upon my interest in the persons of the Trinity, the person, blood, and righteousness of Christ, the free grace of God, and the blessings of grace streaming to me through the blood and righteousness of Christ as the ground of my hope. These are no mm-hmm. new things with me, but what I have long ac- been acquainted with. And what I can live and die by, and this you may tell to any of my friends. I apprehend I shall not be long here. How crazy is that? It's good. Oh Fantastic. my goodness! It's exactly. Reminds I mean, it's, me of. Uh, yeah, I was going to say it reminds me of Machen. You know, on his deathbed, yes, he's yes. dying of pneumonia. Yeah. Praise God for the act of righteousness of Christ. You know, <laughs> act of obedience of Christ. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, because it's just so. I mean, that's how you die. Well, you know, you you can't you can't figure your theology out at that point. You have to have it sorted, and you're leaning on it then. And you. What really... is my only hope in life and death that I belong, yeah. body Amen. and soul, to Jesus Christ? Amen. Catechism question number one. Yeah. <laughs> all right good yeah, uh right. sorry i cut you well, off following there. that up yeah. and it's all pretty much in the same vein but mm-hmm. uh it's his uh, his second uh application is the covenant of redemption guarantees that all the conditions of our salvation have already been met in full yeah. which is why the, this doctrine was historically used to fight against arminianism so particular redemption mm-hmm. and uh, the covenant of redemption go hand in hand so those who believe in limited atonement will have no problem Believing in the uh, the covenant of redemption. Yes. Amen. In many ways, they stand and fall together. Yes. Amen. Uh, and then his third point is the covenant of redemption reveals the incredible love that God has shown to the elect. Mm-hmm. We have been chosen as an expression of the love that God has for himself. The mutual delight of the father and the son and the son in the father forevermore. That's that's the big one right there. It's beautiful doctrine. This is what blows me away. It's Amen. Because yeah. you know when God when God's love is set upon us in Christ before the foundation of the world, it's that that moment of love from the Father towards the Son. We're in the Son, getting that love. That's mm. the basis of our election. And uh, yeah, that's how you die, right there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well. There we go. Covenant of Redemption. Thank you, Guy Richard, for guiding us through that. And um, hopefully that's helpful to Amen. anyone listening in on this, and um, whether it's be the first time you're thinking about it or um, just trying to deepen that out. And so, first of more to come. Thanks, Nick. Amen. No, thank you. Cheers.